one quick announcement that I wanted to make that we forgot to make in the main podcast is that next week being Christmas, we are going to have a podcast, but it will not be on the Gentleman Bastards. We are going to release a one-off podcast that we recorded a few weeks back on Ready Player One so that you guys have something to listen to, but we can kind of take a little bit of time off and enjoy Christmas with our family. So thank you everybody for that, and we will catch you in the new year. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. It is episode 33. Yes, it is. And we are talking about Scott Lynch's The Lies of Locke Lamora. Yes, we are. Fantastic. Yep. Today we are going over chapter four and the interlude that comes before it, the interlude entitled The Last Mistake. Next week, we're going to talk about the interlude that is titled The Boy Who Cried for a Corpse. Hmm. Hmm. And chapter five, which is called The Grey King. So that is next week. The Grey King? That's what it's called? It's called The Grey King. Oh, shit. You're excited. Oh, I know. That might change some of my... You're going to be reading till two o'clock in the morning tonight. I have a feeling that may happen. (laughs) I have a feeling that is actually going to happen tonight. (laughs) All right. So who are we? I'm the Duke. Who are you? I'm the Duchess. Yes, you are. All day. Sitting here glorious in the basement with your long, long coat. (laughs) It's cold down here. It's a little chilly. So we wanted to take a minute to uh, welcome any new listeners we may have. Absolutely. Who are joining us with this series. And we thought we would do that by kind of answering a few get to know us questions for people who haven't had a chance to go back and listen to our very first ever episode. Also, that episode was pretty rough. (laughs) Yeah, that's, honestly, that's, that's fair. We've gotten a little bit better since then. So over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna we're gonna try and uh, just put a little bit out there about who we are and our background with the genre and how we got into th- these kind of books and how we got into this podcast. So I have a question for you this week. Oh, okay, all right, exciting. I'll answer it too if you need a minute to think. But I I wanted to ask you, what would you say if you had to narrow down your top three most influential books? in your life, kind of off the top of your head, what would they be? Mm. So no time to think about it. You just want me to spit them out, right? Yeah. Okay. A Storm of Swords by George R. R. Martin. Absolutely. How come? To me, that book puts genre writing on par with the greatest literature ever written. You know, it's, it's, that's up there to me with Grapes of Wrath, Moby Dick, all of that stuff. So are we talking about within the genre or any books? Any books. Catcher in the Rye. All right. And the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Awesome. <laughs> so so that's a little bit about me. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, that kind of says it all actually about Do, you. Does it? Yeah. It really does. <laughs> yeah for good or for bad that's (laughs) that's what it is sorry so what about you um so i think mine would have to be uh number one 
kind of chronologically was would be The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Um, and I read that book in high school. And up until then, I had read science fiction fantasy before. I had read uh, the Dragonlance Chronicles and the Pern books and all those kinds. But I wasn't... It, so much of an exclusive sci-fi fantasy reader. And that was when I really, that book just really grabbed me. That book got me really into Arthurian fiction. And I spent a few years just going King Arthur crazy. Um, that led me to like Mary Stewart's The Crystal Cave, Good series. Stephen Lawhead, all those books. And that's what really got me into being, um, I wouldn't say that I'm solely interested in sci-fi fantasy, but there's so much good sci-fi fantasy out there, and I really love the genre. So that's what really kind of drew me in to the fandom. Number two has got to be The Wheel of Time, because that series, it, if, for good or bad, whatever you have to say about it, that series was the first big, fat, really nerdy sci-fi fantasy or fantasy series that I got sucked into. You got your bona fides. Oh my gosh. And I got so into this book. I mean, this is the first series also that like I remember sitting with my brother and making charts of who the Forsaken were and what do we think they're up to and who's an agent of who. And we had all these diagrams and stuff. And I mean, just really the first book series that I really nerded out. And I can remember going to the Barnes and Noble with him the night before I the eighth or ninth book was supposed to come out and going up to the manager actually and saying we know you have it back there <laughs> what's it gonna take come on man <laughs> but we were in college so we didn't have enough money to actually bribe <laughs> the parts and noble manager to give us the wheel of time book and we had to wait till the next day <laughs> and then i would have to this is no particular order but i'd have to put the dune uh, Dune in there Ooh, because kinda, that was the mm. first uh, real sci-fi book that got me you know up until I read Dune I had pretty much been a fantasy fan and um, that book kind of opened up the world of sci-fi to me and now I would say I'm an equal equal opportunity well bravo for you for pulling Dune in there I should have put Dune in there but good for you good on you for taking that one. that's that's a good one so that's a little bit about our background um, with the genre and some of our influences. And I have a game, real quick. Oh, roll, roll reversal. <laughs> I'm usually the one who comes up with the impromptu random ass games. So I, I want to play, before we get into the book, I want to play Merry Bike Ride Cliff with oh, you on the podcast. Yes. You have to, do I, you want me to explain Merry Bike Ride Cliff? <laughs> explain or, Merry okay. Bike Ride Cliff. So Merry Bike Ride Cliff is our PG, or rather G-rated version, <laughs> of Mary Fuck Kill that we can play in front of our children. <laughs> and they don't know what it means. <laughs> but one day, so I've just realized this, I was thinking about this today, one day they're going to realize what the bike ride is a euphemism for, <laughs> and it's going to scar them forever. <laughs> Yeah, we had to quickly, when we started playing that game and the kids really latched onto it, we had to be like, no family members. No. <laughs> it's true. They're like, what? what? No. <laughs> you cannot go on a bike ride with your sister. <laughs> no. No family members. You're not Targaryens. No, exactly. Oh. Uh, okay, so Chad. Okay. Mary Bike Ride Cliff. Denna. Okay. From the King Killer Chronicles. Uh -huh, yep, mm-hmm. Starbuck 
Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. From Battlestar Galactica. Uh huh. Or Niniev. Ooh. From the Wheel of Time. So I have to marry one of them? You do. Oh. That's the point. He hates them all. Oh, man. That's <laughs> fucked up. Oh, damn it. Which is the least offensive? Uh, okay. Mary and I have oh, wow. a bike ride, Denna, Cliff, Starbuck. You really hate Starbuck. So, Katie Sackhoff is a wonderful person. She's cute as a button. She is. Something about that role really pissed me off i don't know i don't know what it was something about her in that role just did not do it for me and by the way i was never like a huge fan of the original starbucks so it wasn't like i you know just resented her for you know not being what i thought the original starbucks was just something about it rubbed me the wrong way i don't know what it is all right well there you go there's mary bike ride cliff there you go Wow. Well, I did not expect any of this tonight. <laughs> I've just been waiting to get into the spoiler policy this whole time. <laughs> so this is all a pleasant surprise for me. So spoiler policy. We will um, only be spoiling. So we'll get back to like what we actually talk about on this podcast, which is <laughs> the lies of Locke Lamora. We are only going to spoil up to chapter four of the lies of Locke Lamora. So Chad has not read these books yet. No. Um, I have read them, but we like to keep him uh, unspoiled because then he'll make all kinds of predictions. Oh, and did you tell him about the tinfoil hats that we're wearing? We uh, we actually have have some tinfoil hats that we're breaking out for this episode because we've gotten into we're getting into some we're starting some to yeah. really fun theories. We're starting now in to this get a, just enough information to be able to actually start making some wild ass guesses. You know, because when you only you're only a couple chapters in, there's just limited. You don't have a lot of Legos to work with to really build some outlandish shit. But now we got a big old pile of Legos. We're starting to be able to build some stupid shit. <laughs> so it's starting to get fun. So are we ready to get into the book? Yeah, let's talk. Let's do it. So the interlude that we're covering is called The Last Mistake. And The Last Mistake is the name of the bar, the kind of thieves' den in Camor. And The Last Mistake is a flashback to Locke's childhood, and it covers his first meeting with Kappa Barsavi. So we start this interlude with Locke waking up with a hangover, and he says something kind of funny, and uh, he says, liquor does this even after you're sober? Yeah. And Chains is there, and I, I thought this was really interesting, how Chains is there, and he's kind of patting his back, patting his head, and, and nursing him through the hangover. And this is obviously just such a huge departure from anything that Locke has known in his short life. Well, at least f- through Shades Hill, that right. that experience. Right. We didn't really know what happened prior to him being five years old. But yeah, so that was an interesting section. I liked how, as you said, you get to see that Chains is not at all like the Thief Maker, very different. And he also talks to him about how uh, Ostershawlin... Brandy does not give hangovers. But my impression of this section was that eight-year-olds don't get hangovers, dude. Really? No. Not ever been experienced with a, a drunk eight-year-old, so... Well, I, I mean, I don't recommend it. That was true. But, but you have to be drinking for a while. You don't get hangovers the fir- when, when you're young. 
And when you first start drinking it, it takes a while. I do not have that experience. We have very different lives. That's my wild ass assertion that I'm going to make based on nothing. Based on nothing at all. Based on nothing at all. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) The other thing that I thought was interesting about this is in the in the first section here, we learn about wraith stone and the gentling process. And it's like elder glass. It was this thing, this substance created by the Eldrin, who are the quote alien race that Scott Lynch keeps talking about. And they talk about how it's a process that, unlike a poison which would damage a physical part of your body, your bloodstream, your breathing system, create huge amounts of inflammation, etc. This does nothing physical. It simply saps out all initiative and will from any creature who breathes it. So that was interesting. And I'm sure not put there for no reason. So something that's going to come back around. Right. So Locke has woken up with his hangover and he and Chains are, are still going to set off to see Kappa Barsavi, who was asked to see Locke. And Kappa Barsavi is the crime boss of Kamor. And Chains says about him, the only people who break appointments with him are the ones who live in glass towers and have their pictures on coins. And even they think twice. So again, it's a little, we get another piece of, so a little more information about him that he is one of the true powers behind the city. And that even the the ruling nobility think twice before they cross him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And and I I think that this section on Wraithstone is significant as well. And one quote that I kind of pulled out of that was how they talked about how way back in the day there was a short period of time where Wraithstone would be used on humans as a punishment, but very quickly it was so unsettling that they decided not to do that anymore. And he says, you know, this society that still hangs children for petty theft and feeds prisoners to sea creatures found the results too disquieting to bear. So you know this is some some serious stuff. Yeah. And they also mention um, several times the Theron thrones. That's a little bit of the history. Mm-hmm. Sort of the, not the pre-pre-history of this Eldrin race, but then you kind of get get a hint of what, what kind of came before the current sort of city-state government. Was that what was going on? I'm glad you said that because I'm still in that place where I'm still trying to pick out, you know, the world building and it's not super clear to me. I thought maybe that was just the actual, like, so I took it as though this area was sort of like a city-state and that the Theron throne was part of maybe like the larger government that encompassed the entire region. But you're saying this is more like a predecessor government. That's my understanding. Okay. That they kind of, things kind of split apart. That there was at one time like a unified kingdom and then it mm. kind of split off. Okay. I, I also like this quote as he's walking and, and they're talking about the gentled animals and... But, and, and it mentions that Locke is getting used to the idea that he was a murderer and a resident of a private glass fairyland. <laughs> I missed that one. That you was missed one. that one? Yeah. I don't it's know funny. how I missed that one. Yeah. So in the second part, we have Locke and Chains talking more about how Capabarsavi came to power. Right, so we learn a lot more about Kappa Barsavi, and we learn that it hasn't always been structured the way that things are, that there used to be all these rival gangs. Yeah, and in fact, this is relatively recent, yeah. Right, and in the last five years, Kappa Barsavi, who was a scholar at at the the Theron Collegium, and he he was a rhetoric teacher, 
all of a sudden busts in and becomes this badass crime boss. Yeah, right. And starts just dismantling the other gangs very methodically. And that he's totally a badass, you know, not afraid to ruin a good carpet. That shows the guy is bright, not only because he's a professor, but that he also knows and understands enough about this underworld to kind of give people what they expect and also to be really quite ruthless and brutal at the same time. So an interesting point about that is that in Locke's lifetime, his very short little life, when he was born, the situation with the underworld and the thieves was dramatically different from what it is today. So it's not like Kappa Barsavi came to power seven or eight years before Locke was even born. This has all happened in his lifetime. Right, and that is interesting that he hasn't been aware of it up until this point. We know that he lived on the streets before he came to live with the thief maker and that he already knew how to pick pockets, Mm -hmm. but is completely unaware of the right people. He doesn't know anything about their organization. or The secret piece. The secret, doesn't even know about the secret piece. But that didn't exist five years ago. That is not clear. Hmm. It is, we know that the secret piece was the is the key to Barsavi's power, but he doesn't outright say that it didn't exist in some form. Yeah, fair point. Before Barsavi took over. Mm, yeah, that's um, that's true. Fair point. So we don't know yet. What we do know is that Kappa Barsavi is the baddest bofo lowdown around this town. <laughs> He's pretty much the shogun of Kamor. <laughs> And he holds court on a sunken ship. So if that's the case, then when he's with all of his people and he says, say show enough, what do they say? They say show enough. Okay. All right. I mean, I see Kappa Barsavi as John Goodman wearing a padded red leather vest, personally. Uh, (laughs) That's just a, that's a road too far. three-pointed beards you can't see it it's just me look i got feelings about the three-pointed <laughs> beards you want to get into them i'll get in i'll get into them so i mean uh didn't you want to talk about sort of the issue around trade and oh right yeah. so one of our listeners had a really good comment recently about the secret piece and so in this society it's understood that it was theo this... by the way i just want to oh hey theo hey theo. yes so you've got this criminal underworld who has an agreement with the nobility. They don't directly contact each other. It's through intermediaries. But they basically agree that they're not going to rob the nobility. And the nobility will not storm in and kill all of them. It's not outwardly legal for them to rob people. But they're not going to come in. And they kind of don't have this open warfare. And the city watch is lax in certain parts of the city. So they can kind of do, do their business. Theo pointed out that it seems unlikely that a city would be able to flourish when the merchants are open business or open season on the merchants. Well, Theo, to that I say, please come to Baltimore. But what we find out in this section about Camor is that the nobility does a lot of the trading. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the trade is done through the noble families. And you have a lot more of these like 
like a Renaissance Italy kind of structure where you have these merchant princes who come up, but who still continue their family business. Yeah. So they're still bringing things in. And that Camor is apparently a, a, just a hub of trade. So there are so many people coming in and out that there's plenty for people to rob and still be able to lay off the nobility. So I thought that was, but I, but I thought that was a really good question and a really good point. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, it is difficult to kind of see how it's a situation that is tenable for a long-term society. And I think what we would what we would state is that we don't think it ultimately is. Well, no. I mean, and and Florence declined, it, you know, right right around the 1500s. It's had a pretty rapid decline as well. Probably mm-hmm. I think because of that. I mean, I'm not a history scholar, so I don't know all the nuances. If you are, please tweet us. And fill us in because... 280 characters. You got to fit it in 280 characters. I got a short span of attention. So, decline of Florence, 280 characters. Go. Go. Exactly. Yes. All right. Hot shot. So you do that. Can y'all tell I've been on Wikipedia a bit this week? <laughs> so, in section four of this interlude, we, we actually go into the last mistake, which, mm-hmm. like we said, is this den of thieves. Which reminds me of Key West. It does remind me of Key West a little bit. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. It's an elder glass tower that was somehow broken before humans moved in. So we know that humans can't break or destroy elder glass in any way, but something broke this tower, and the humans have kind of built up around it, and it's structurally sound, but it's not pretty. And one thing that I caught this time through that I didn't last time was that the the bar is decorated with fragments of broken armor and broken ships. And they say um, they have mementos of the last mistake that all of those ships ever took that have Mm -hmm. foundered outside of Camor. And I just love that symbolism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love the, the idea of the gentleman bastards who are living on the edge of this underworld and breaking its most important rule right under their noses. You know, and these these criminals who pride themselves on being like the baddest are actually being undermined. Yeah, don't abs- even know it. Absolutely. And at this point in the uh, in the story, I haven't quite picked up on that to this point. But yeah, when you go back and read it again to take notes, you're like, oh, okay, I see so, what's going on. So this section, we also meet um, Barsavi and his daughter Nazca. Yep. And and listen, if you got a beard made of three braids and it goes all the way down, you know, to your chest. I don't like you. Really? Mm. Is it the beard or the braids that bother you? Oh, beards are fine. Okay. And a braided beard is fine. If you braid it into three beard three braids. That's over the line. That's over the goddamn line. You know, it may not be the beards. I don't wanna I don't wanna malign anybody who has, you know, their beard braided into three separate braids. Perhaps it's the vest with the human fucking teeth on it. Like this guy, He's a criminal underlord. This guy He's have human teeth somewhere on his person. Is a jackass. <laughs> so I'm meeting this guy for the first time, and I'm like, like he might be an all right father, but he's a fucking jackass. <laughs> he is a complete and total fucking jackass. Like I do not like this guy right off the bat. If you want to impress Chad. Don't wear your vest covered in human teeth the first time you meet him. I think those teeth are magical. Note. So what did you think of Nazca? So Nazca seemed like a p- 
petulant child kind of right up Locke's alley. So I didn't, she was okay. I mean, other than the fact that she is basically our six-year-old. Yeah, especially with the with the boots, with the blades on it. <laughs> I, I mean, was like, I read that and thought, Scott Lynch knows our daughter. Yeah. He's- and my favorite part of that interaction, which actually reminds me of our eight-year-old, is how he goes, she's sitting on his lap, and he goes to give her like a playful kind of embrace, and hey, get out of here, you little rapscallion. And she jumps off of his lap and just sort of like flinches away just enough so he can't get a hold of her. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't want to hug out from you, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I experience that every day with our eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, so true. So Locke goes through this initiation, and he's being actually officially sworn in as a paison to Kappa Barsavi. And Kappa Barsavi gives him a drink with a shark's tooth in it and tells him to hold the tooth in his mouth. And the tooth is spelled. So we see a little bit of the supernatural here. We know there's, this is a pretty low magic world, but there is some kind of magic going around. And he's got this tooth spelled so that it will twist and cut the mouth of the person who is trying to drink. And he, and he puts a bit, bit of theatricality into it and says, well, now you're sworn to me. My tooth has tasted your blood. Yeah. And Locke is all like, what? And he's been, oh, no. he, he's had more liquor than he's probably ever had in his life all in the last 24 hours. And so he doesn't know what's going on. But as they're walking away from there, and he's duly impressed, Chains has an important revelation for him. It's all bullshit. You know, that, okay, Barsavi is built this whole thing on bravado. And more to the point that Chains' plan doesn't have anything at all to do with complying with Capabarsavi. In fact, he wants to completely undermine him and destroy the world that he's built. So we learn, we do learn in this chapter that Chains and Barsavi have a bit of a backstory. We don't know the exact story, but we know that Chains was instrumental to Barsavi's rise to power. And Bar- Barsavi was the one who ended up with the power. And Chains, all he asked for was something he called the distance, which means just let me run my little gang and leave me alone and trust me, don't put any spies in my organization and you can run the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. And so Chains uses that and I have this quote to kind of describe what his ultimate plan for the gentleman bastards is. And he says, by now you must have realized that I intend you and Callow and Galdo and Sabatha to be nothing less than a fucking ballista bolt right through the heart of Ven Carlo's precious secret piece. Oh shit. The last mistake has a big suit of armor with a crossbow bolt or a hole for a bolt mm-hmm. right over the heart. Yep. And so this confirms. There's what, a little symbolism in this section. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And so we've speculated about it before that and, and it's been hinted at, but now it's really kind of put out there that Chains is a- actively looking to undermine the secret piece. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's interesting because you had speculated last time or had made the statement last time that when a society is so corrupt, you know, at at kind of both ends of it, then really the only honest thing to do is to be dishonest in undermining that society. Like, that destroying that society is really the only honest thing you can do. Right, and that's what I, I love about this book because you have the thieves are the ones with that are truest to their moral code. 
but they don't do it in a way that they're stealing, giving to the poor or anything that's kind of tropey like that. Yeah. You know, they steal just for stealing, just to do it. And we learn later that the gentleman bastards don't actually even spend the money that they steal. Yep. And that's actually how the next chapter opens up. Exactly. And this is part two. So I hadn't quite realized until this point that, you know, the book is kind of carved into like a part one, part two. I don't know how many parts there are, but either way, this last interlude was sort of the end of the first section. And now we enter into another phase of the book and it does sort of feel like you're actually beginning to get into some plot now because up to this point, it's really been, it's been stage setting. It's been interesting stage setting and meeting interesting characters and kind of setting the world, but it hasn't really been plot in sort of the grander scheme, unless you felt like the con for Don Silvara was you know what the overall plot was going to be which i guess it i guess i kind of did at first but now you see there's something a little deeper than that going on which is good so this section at the court of kappa barsavi this is where we kind of see a meeting with kappa barsavi in the present day but it opens up with bug counting the last of the twenty thousand tyrants that they just got off of the Don as part of their scheme. And I'm just trying to picture counting 20,000 of anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be fun. Not going to be fun at all. Um, and they reveal that there are no locks on their vault. They've got all this money and they, they reveal that and they put it out there and it's been mentioned before, but now it's outwardly really stated that the, that the gentleman bastards are as rich as the guy they're robbing, that they've got a fortune of, like over 40,000 crowns. But they have a problem, which is that they're supposed to be poor window breakers, you know, and, and second story men, and they can't have this conspicuous consumption. They can't go out and buy fancy clothes, and they can't, you know, buy houses on the other side of town, at least not openly. Now, I sort of feel like if you can be so convincing that you can be Lucas Fairwright and convince Don Salvara of X, Y, and Z, then you could find a way to assume a different identity and begin to start using this money to invest it in different ways. So it's not, in my mind, it's not that they are unable to spend that money to sort of enrich their own lives. It's simply that they don't want to, or at least not at this point. They're doing it, as you said, because it's fun, and the, really where they've spent money has been in the things that they need to the, employ the ruse, and that's it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It definitely seems like this gang, they are just stealing just to steal, just for the, the enjoyment of it, and because they, for them, it's part of their religion. And I really, it starts to seem that you know, Chains, at least, was very devout in his devotion to what he called the, the unnamed 13th god, who was the god of thieves, sort of the Loki of the, the pantheon in Camor, and that he was truly devout and believed that yeah. stealing was the right thing to do. Yeah. And so that's why when we talk about the moral compass and Chains probably having the truest one out of anyone in the book, you know, he breaks the secret peace because the secret peace goes against his religion. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he's trained his acolytes to do the same. And we know that Locke seems to have succeeded him in the priesthood. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, these guys could, if they wanted to, they could get a ship. They could take all this money. They could put on new personas. They could leave. If it was about getting rich and living fat, they could do that. They would be able to do that right now. But that is not what it's about. And that becomes even more clear as you go through this chapter, because multiple times throughout the chapter, when it becomes clear that there's potentially some danger, the guys are like, hey, let's get a boat. Let's get the hell out of here. And Locke is like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. So the gang goes off to start to go see Kappa Barsabi. I love the bullshit box. The bullshit box is hilarious. So they have to take him a tithe of what they earn, but they can't be bothered to actually go break into houses like they're supposed who's to be got, doing. Who's got time for that bullshit? <laughs> so they have something called the bullshit box, which is just a bunch of pawn store junk that they accumulate and buy. And so they pull out what they think. And I just love how how careful Locke is and, and how careful they are and subtle in that he says, you know, it was pretty rainy this month, so probably that would have impacted our business. So let's take out less than we're supposed to give him. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the other thing I noted is that when we see Locke in this chapter, he's coming, he's as Lucas Fairwright, he's coming back in from having got another writ or another promissory note from Don Savara. We don't really know what he was doing kind of in between chapter three and chapter four. There was a time there that he was not accounted for. Right. But now the whole gang kind of goes off and we go, they go through Kamor and we learn about some of the more unsavory parts of Kamor. We have the dregs, the snare, the, the cauldron, the cauldron, the graveyard. And the cauldron apparently was the worst. Yeah. We find out the bug was from the cauldron. Yeah, so, so Jean is from the north, the comfortable north corner. Kylo and Galdo are, are dregs boys. Locke is obviously from the Catchfire District. And Bug is from the Cauldron. But as you said, he won't even talk about it. And then we take a, a boat to the Wooden Waste. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting is they're on the boat, and I forget the gentleman's name, but they're on the boat with another thief who's kind of a low-level lookout from another gang, and they all kind of know each other. But I, I thought, thought this was interesting. So on his boat, they're getting on the boat, and he said, there's a freshly killed rat lashed to the bow spar just beneath a small wooden idol of Iono. And I thought, hmm, is this some sort of foreshadowing? And I think it comes back around a little towards the end of the chapter. It might be. I will say, I, I just love the scene setting. You know, this is such a gloomy, kind of weird world. Yeah. And I just love it. I, I loved No Hope Harza. What a great name. Oh, yeah, name. The, the grouchy-ass pawnbroker. Uh, question for you. So they're going to a place called the Wooden Waste, which is an area where all these ships break up. And that's where Capobarsavi has chained his enormous... Uh, houseboat that he that he conducts business on. When they first met him, didn't they meet him inside the last mistake, which was a bar? Yes. So it seems like he. I, I'm, it'd be interesting to know if he has sort of changed only recently because of what the Gray King has been doing, or if that's something that's happened over time 
that he had to go from kind of operating more publicly to a little bit with a little bit more security. I get the impression that it's a recent thing. Yes. And, and I think it's kind of at the, at the end when Nazca and Locke are talking, that is kind of addressed a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, but for now, they're, they're, they roll up to the floating grave, which is the, the Kappa, where the Kappa is operating from. It's an opulent galleon and um, amidst all these other sunken ships. They stop at the, the pawn shop of Noho Parza to turn in their goods. Oh, he's got some good quotes. He does. But before we get there, when we're on the way, we find out from the guy who's pulling oh, the boat right. yes. that Tall Tesso was killed by the Grey King in a horribly brutal way, and that he is the seventh Garista to be killed in the last two months, each of them with the distance, just like Locke. And I thought it was interesting that, I said this last episode, that I, you know, I kind of pay attention to the perspective in terms of, is it first person, is it third person? That's fairly obvious. Right. But I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, like, the degree of detachment in third person. You know, and this is a style that, for the most part, has been pretty detached. You don't get a lot of, like, what's going on in people's heads. It's more of, like, a third-party observer sort of looking at things and kind of giving you the impression of what they see and maybe some history from this sort of impartial third party, but not a lot of inside people's head. But when this happens, you get a little bit inside a Locke's head and you hear Locke begin to get nervous and to say, you know, is the Grey King potentially gunning for me too? Is it time for me to start taking this seriously. And that's very different from what we heard Locke say in the last chapter when he said, uh, the Great King will be dead. The Great King is a dead man walking, not a big deal. So I felt like that was an important thing to note. One of the few times you really get a glimpse inside of Locke's head. I think that was a really good observation. Um, and when they approach the court, they're being warned by several people. He's in a mood. He's in a really bad mood. Yeah. And they're met by, uh, not only by the guards, but also by Nazca, who pulls Locke aside and won't really tell him what's going on, but says, whatever he wants you to do, just agree to it. We'll figure and it Locke's out later. Like, Locke's like, yeah, I wasn't planning on doing anything different. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of a, <laughs> you know, like, I'm not going to fuck around with Al Capone. And, exactly. Like, of course I'm going to do what he tells me to do. <laughs> and then he walks in, and the kappa is having a man uh, tortured, many men tortured. He's on the good ship murder, hanging out in the cool torture chamber. And being tortured, not just tortured, but having a sack of broken glass tied over a guy's face, and then the glass is then massaged into his face until he dies. Yeah, pretty... Which is Pretty much the most awful thing I've ever read. Pretty awful, yeah. Oh, there, really so there, is one, there is one other important discussion, I'm sorry, that, that we get into before we, we go in there. I'm sorry right. to keep taking it back, but... No, that's fine. Um, so when Locke and Nazca are talking, they get into a, a pretty long conversation about what's going on with the Grey King. Who do you think the Grey King is? And Nazca is, you know, taking this quite seriously, saying, I don't think we've been betrayed, but I feel like we're outmatched. This Grey King is is using something we don't know about. He's doing something in a way that we're unaware. There's something going on here. And Locke continues to dismiss it and be like, 
He's lucky and clever, and luck won't last forever, trust me. You know, and he's really being quite dismissive of the Grey King, despite what he had going on in his head earlier. You know, he's still sort of like, you know, really just not taking it seriously. Right, and I think that's consistent with what we've seen from Locke so far, and that his motto is, he's richer and cleverer than anyone else. Yeah. And you see that as a child when he, he doesn't want to admit that anyone else has the same kind of brain that he does. And he's, he's prided himself on that. So he tests, I think he tends to see everyone that way. So as he and Oscar are talking about it, she says, I feel like, and I don't have this written down. So this is from memory, but I feel like we're the mouse and the cat has its paw on our tail. Right. And just because the cat hasn't broken out his claws yet doesn't mean there's a whole lot the mouse can can do about it. Right. You know, and that kind of goes back to that foreshadowing a little bit about the rat on the pole, you know, trying to ward off some sort of unforeseen catastrophe. And we all know that it's bullshit. You're not going to ward it off. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I sort of feel like the Grey King has basically already won this war. He's just waiting for the ink to dry on the contract. At this point, the play is in. It's already done. It's just a matter of time before it all completely plays out. And Bar- there's, not a sh- there's not shit Barsavi can do about it, especially when he continues to hide in- inside of his boat, torturing his own people. You can't tell, but I'm a gog. that was a really good observation and i totally agree with you and it sounds like nazca that's her assessment of the situation as well but being the youngest of her siblings and being her father's baby girl nobody doesn't seem like anyone is listening to her yeah and in this society we've seen i think a greater degree of gender equality than we might typically see in a lot of fantasy settings most of our fantasy settings, we have this sort of hearkening back to our own history where there was no such thing as gender equality. It, you know, it would, it would have been laughable. But we see here there's a lot of female fighters, guards that are women, you know, women who are in charge. So it doesn't seem like it's it seems like it's a, de- a greater degree of gender equality than we had in our own past. And yet still not really equal. You know, I really like the level of gender equality that is in the book. It's not overdone. It's not like overblown to kind of prove a point. Mm -hmm. It just is. And I think even when Barsavi is talking about why Nazca will not be the next Kappa, he says, it's not because she's a woman, mind you. It's just because her, her two older brothers would never let their younger sibling rule over them and I don't want them to kill each other. Yeah, yeah. For my legacy. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's not her gender that's holding her back. It's her being the youngest. Yeah, correct. You know, and you look at Don Salvara and his wife. She is obviously an equal in the relationship and probably the smarter of the two. Definitely the one that Locke and the Gentleman Bastards are more leery of. Yeah, for sure. Um, we haven't met Sabatha, but she is obviously a, a gang member held in equal esteem to the others. So I'd say it's a pretty pretty egalitarian society. For a fantasy setting. Yeah, I think so. So, fun time in the crazy torture chamber? Fun time in the crazy torture chamber. Yeah, I have to say that this scene to me was a little off-putting. 
the friend of ours who recommended this book to me, I, I remember it distinctly because I remember him recommending it and being like, oh, this book is so good. You got to read. And then he kind of stopped and went, it's pretty violent. There are a couple parts that are very violent. And I was like, well, you know, if it's if it's well done, it's not going to it's not going to put me off. When I read the scene, I was like, this is the scene he was thinking of. He was like, oh, I hope she's not going to think I'm a psycho for recommending this book. You know, it, it's not even this. It's not even the violence of the scene so much that bothers me, although that's definitely a factor. Sort of like the over-the-top, you know, gratuitousness of it is definitely a part of it, but I think it sort of paints—it's almost comical in the degree that it's so over-the-top with the violence. Like, it's almost so kind of unbelievable that it almost puts you in this mindset of it being a parody because it couldn't really be that way. You know, that this guy is just so blasé about it. But that's not, that sort of sets the tone for what my my big gripe with it is, but it's not the entirety of it. My big gripe with this scene is that the people he's torturing have obviously undergone some process that has erased their memory of the night before. And it's pretty clear, and they're trying to, they're not trying to say, it's not that we don't remember what happened to Tall Tesso. It's that we don't remember anything. But it's not being received. That message is not being received. And I don't know. That just seems unrealistic to me. It just seems a little too kind of plot convenient that this character, that this Kappa Barsavi would not even allow, like they, they couldn't even express that. Except that the way I took it was that Barsavi, and it's Nazca expresses this to Locke before he even goes in, is not in his right state of mind. Fair point. And Locke begins to suspect towards the end that, oh, wait, I don't think this is him having some grand plan, that this is a part of his grand plan that's going to pan out later. I think he's actually lost his mind. He's coming apart at the seams. He, he's falling apart. Yeah. To the point where, yes, and and, and it's he he actually says to his people... Well, short of, if you weren't on drugs, then short of sorcery or divine intervention, obviously, you would, you must be lying, unless you were touched by the gods, and I don't think that happened. But he never goes back to the sorcery question, yeah, which yeah. obviously exists in this world. Well, and I'm it seems pretty clear to me that that's what happened. Right. Um, however, at that point, then Locke start, does start to think, oh, wait, he might be actually just losing his mind. Yeah, and maybe that's and maybe maybe it actually is better writing than I'm giving it credit for, in that it's a showing, not telling of this character just completely coming apart from his senses, right? Because he did not seem to be that kind of character twenty years ago when we first met him. Absolutely. So maybe I'm not giving it enough credit from that. And that's why I think their the juxtaposition of these two scenes is so cleverly done Mm. because we get to see him in his prime. Um, in the flashback as this... Before his triple chin, triple braided beard. Exactly. Dude, you got to cut that fucking beard off. (laughs) Like, there's a point at which you can't try to act like you're 20 years old anymore, and you got to go away from the haircut. It's like the 50-year-old dude who's the music producer for all the young kids, but he's trying to wear the, like, 18-year-old haircut, but he's balding at the top. Yeah, don't do that. Don't, like, just... Can accept it when you when you get the triple chin, the braided beards got to go. I have a problem with it. 
I, I mean, I, pe- some people have strong feelings about facial hair. <laughs> and that's okay. Listen, when I was like 22 years old, I had weird ass freaky long hair too. But I can't pull that shit off anymore. I mean, I think you could. No, I can't. I appreciate that you, you could try. <laughs> I could get fired. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, the juxtaposition of these two scenes, I really like it because we get to see Barsavi in his prime 20 years ago when he's, you know, with his full mental faculties. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that he was a professor and that he was very smart and we get all this background on him. And then we see him as he is today. And to me, that's a deliberate contrast to show you that that this is someone who's completely cracked up and that Locke is in a very dangerous situation because he is one wrong move away from having a bag of glass thrown over his head. Yeah, absolutely. And then the Kappa asks him to marry his daughter. (laughs) Which, again, seems so completely out of left field. And this part, to me, I felt like Locke did sort of sell it as a, Oh, fuck. (laughs) Like, okay, this is crazy, and it's the last fucking thing I need right now. Right. So that part came... Came across pretty pretty clear, right? So so Barsavi leads into the conversation by saying he's freaking out. He's worried about his two sons who are uh, less prudent than their sister, and he's worried about what's going to happen when he's gone. And he wants someone who is going to be in his family, who's going to be able to, you know, help rein them in a little bit. And he talks about how Locke is the most careful of his garistas, the least greedy the most subtle, the most prudent. And he knows that Locke and Nazgar are friends and he assumes that they have feelings for each other. So he's trying to like, you know, make sure his kids are going to be okay after he's gone. And he asks Locke, tells Locke he has permission to court his daughter. Yeah, and this whole thing smacked to me of a guy who does not really get the lay of the land. Because, as you said, Locke and Nazgar don't really have a thing for each other. At least Locke doesn't. And everybody else in the whole world, apparently, except for Barsavi, seems to get that he's in love with Sabatha. But Barsavi doesn't seem to get it. The other thing is, he thinks that the two older boys are reckless and that Nazca is being prudent. And while we get the impression that she is quite smart, what she wants to do is not sit and be passive. She wants to go out, get answers, take it to this Grey King. What she wants to do is really not all that prudent either. But he just does not see that. Like, he really does not even know what his children are thinking. Right. Just waiting for the ink on that contract to dry. Great King's in charge. Yeah, it definitely seems like things are falling apart. And I think we learned something interesting about Locke here. And I think it's important to one of the themes of the book. In that the Kappa, you know, he's talking to Locke. And of course, Locke is like, oh, thank you. That's amazing. Yay. Yay. I get to be your son-in-law. What an honor. Woohoo. Yeah. You know. And Barsavi starts saying things like, you know, if my sons don't settle down or who knows they could have accidents one day it could be uh Capa Lamora mm. running the city what do you think of that and Locke says 
I have never desired a COPPA's power because I have never desired a COPPA's problems. And that really stuck out to me because I think because I'd been reading so much about Florence and the de Medici's and all that kind of stuff. And do you know? No, I don't. What the the house words of the de Medici family was. (laughs) Only because you told me, but go ahead. (laughs) I did tell you. I'm going to tell you again on the podcast because I thought this was so interesting. Their motto um, was... Money to get the power, power to get the money, or something like that. No, I think that's... Yeah, yeah. money to get the power. First you get the money, then you get the women. <laughs> then you get, That was actually someone's house words, their motto. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. But it stuck out to me because Locke is someone who wants neither. He has yeah. the money. He could get the power. He doesn't want either. Not interested. And again, I think that's a deliberate contrast. I think that's what the main message of this book is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now I picked up on one historical fact as well as I was researching this. So if you, there was twice in this chapter that the knackers were mentioned. Right. Once when they're pulling horse corpses off of some barge and another time again in the pawn shop when, when uh, Harza says, at least I could sell dog cocks to the knackers. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, welcome as a pile of severed dog cocks. Okay, gross. But, <laughs> but two, what the fuck are knackers? Like, I was like, what the fuck is a knacker? So I had to look it up. So a knacker is apparently a British term for somebody who disposes of unwanted dead animals. There's a term for that. That's, I did not know that. I didn't either. British listeners, did you all know that? Confirm or deny, please. <laughs> is this true? While you're at it, is it true that you have milk in a bag? Ooh, I know about milk in a box. I've heard they have milk in a bag over there. Ooh, that's interesting. And I'm intrigued as to how that works. Also, why is it that you guys get to keep your eggs unrefrigerated and we don't? Right? So much refrigerator space wasted. I know. You go to Europe and you're like... You can keep the eggs out. They're like, yeah, and you're like, this is this changes everything. Also, explain healthcare because we clearly don't get it. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm anyway, done. enough, enough. Sorry. We're not going there. Um, All right, so worst so we, one-liner ever. Okay, okay. All right, because you have let me down, I shall let you down. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's a man on the edge. It's just proof that he's cracking up. Well, that for sure. He's de- he's definitely that. He's definitely that. Uh, best one-liner ever. This is the damnedest damn thing that ever damned things up for us. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of good lines from the crew. Right. You I know. love the banter. Yeah, a lot of good... A lot of good stuff from from the uh, from the twins and from Jean and all. That I loved stuff. when Chains in the in the interlude back then when Chains was getting ready to take Locke and he turns to the Sanzes and says, "This temple better be here <laughs> when I come <laughs> when back. I come back." <laughs> it took me it took me a second to get. I was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" <laughs> and then I kind of picked up and I was, oh yeah okay. So kind of wrapping things up with this chapter in the last section, the gang all kind of retreats to one of their rooms and kind of talk things over. And again, 
they're all very nervous. They, John especially wants to leave, or yeah, at least wants saying, to get let's, locked let's leave, out. Yeah. Locke saying, I thought we were richer and cleverer than everyone else. We can handle this. This is exactly what Chains trained us for, you know, to operate in these situations where things are fucked on all sides and we're just going to stay. This is what we, yeah, this is what we do. This is what we do better than anybody else. He's like, I'll let you sort of set the stage. Go ahead and and st- start preparing it in case we have to bug out. But that's that's not what we're going to do. Right, and he, he has a nice little inspirational speech. Yeah, and... It's more into the breach. And Bug says, I knew that was why I let you be in charge of this gang. Right. <laughs> so again, more and more clever one-liners. So what'd you think of this section? I mean, I dug it. I'm trying to remember when I first read this book, what, what was it that really, like, grabbed me? And I feel like it was a little bit later. Not that I didn't enjoy it up to then, but mm-hmm. um, but on a reread, I was surprised about how much more I picked up in some of the symbolism that we talked about. What about you? I enjoyed it. So I, I sort of put out there that there were some, you know, some things I didn't enjoy as much. Uh, the Barsavi torturing, the, not even so much him torturing the guys, but his inability to even let them explain what happened. Like he's torturing them and they can't seem to express the idea that it's not that we don't know what happened to to Tesso. It's that we don't know what happened at all. It just seems to me like that would be a fairly obvious piece of evidence to anybody in their right mind that there's something magical going on here. But he just, either he can't hear it or it's written in a way where they're just sort of conveniently not allowing that piece of information to get out. Well, and that's not the way I read it because it certainly sounds like Nazca at least and probably all the sane people around Barsabi can tell that something is going on. Well, and I think he, I think also the, the author makes that fairly clear he puts the evidence out there for you to be able to pick up up on it as the reader so it's not like he's trying to keep it secret from you so i think your your point may be accurate i might be being a little harsh on scott lynch in that particular scene but but overall i enjoyed it it was a good read you ready for predictions yes what do you think's gonna happen okay so i got a handful of predictions that i'm gonna make and then one prediction that i really really wanted to make but I can't. You still got to say it. We we have uh, we'll these hats on. We we'll have the tinfoil hats The tinfoil hats are on. here. They're crinkly. They're ready to go. Okay, so my first is that the Grey King is already, like, it's a done deal. It's just a matter of time before Barsavi's out of the picture. So now we're going to go back in time a little bit. Prediction number one. Locke's father used to be one of the Kappas that Barsavi deposed. And that's where he learned to steal and also why he didn't know about the secret piece. Hmm. The Grey King is one of the ex-Kappas. Hmm. The Grey King is Locke's father. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
I wanted to say that the Grey King is Chains, mm. but that's not it's not what it is. Chains would be too old. I'm pretty sure the guys know he died. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any kind of coming back right. after the fact. So, so I don't think that's what it is. And also the Barsavi gets killed by the Grey King. Now, the prediction that I really wanted to make, the one that I was right there on the edge of making, was the Grey King is Loch Lamora. Because if you go through kind of these predictions as I'm making, if you follow my weird-ass train of logic, as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking... In the in the interlude, I'm thinking Locke is the child of one of these old coppas who got taken out, killed. He got moved off, so he didn't get mixed up in it. That's why he already knew how to steal, why he didn't know the secret piece, right? So I'm going down that line of reasoning, right? We also get introduced into this, the idea that Locke is trying to undermine Barsavi and he's doing all this shit underneath of his nose and he's super, super calm about it. And I thought, is it possible that he's doing the same thing to his own crew? And when he's kind of out of the nest, that's why I pointed out that like he disappears and he runs off. And when he's running off, he could also be doing these other things, you know? And then when we get into the ship with Nazca and She's like, all this shit's going down. And he's deliberately like, well, what do you think it is? I'm like, he's trying to pick her brain to see what she knows. And then he's, oh, he's just lucky. He's not really anything to worry about. Now I'm like, he's downplaying it. I'm like, God damn it. Locke Lamora is the Grey King. Holy shit. But the problem with it, and the reason why I had to go back on it, is because of the scene where he finds out that Tall Tesso was killed and that little bit of time that you go inside of his head and he is expresses his fear and paranoia. Right. So unless it's a fight club type scenario right, where he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and mm-hmm. I don't believe that's what it is, then he can't be the Grey King. Right. But I'm willing to bet that the Grey King is somebody that is one of the ex-Kappas. Mm-hmm. Very good observations. We'll find out soon. Yeah, the Locke's father thing might be a bit too far, but... Don't know. So, do we have interactions to talk about? We or? do. We have some. We have a couple questions. So, you you brought up the one about Theo and his exp- idea about the secret piece not making sense. But he also asked, who replaces chains above ground? Is it Locke who becomes the priest of Paralandro who stands out there and becomes the eyeless priest? So, he asked that question. Well, I think it. We find out in this section that there, there's no more eyeless priest. Nobody replaces chains, and that only Barsavi still thinks that Locke and his crew still sit outside a couple of days a week and collect money. And maybe they do, but for the most part, people assume that they've moved on from working out of the Temple of Paralandro, and that they are now just pretty much housebreakers. Yeah, I felt like it was pretty clear. That when Chains died, they went away from that whole idea, and everybody just thinks the church is abandoned. I feel like that was made pretty clear, that nobody's pretending to be the eyeless priest anymore. Chains died, and as far as everybody else in the world is concerned, when Chains died, the church shut down, and it's pretty much empty, which is why 
they have sort of these other residences that they keep around town. And as far as anybody's concerned, that's where they live. Right. You know, so they're trying to keep the church within a church. They're trying to keep that completely on the down low so that people don't talk about it. So the other thing he said was, and this is another nitpicky thing, but he said, if the elder glass is unbreakable, then how are they mounting doors in it and windows and shit? Which is a good point. Like, how they have all these trap doors and different things built into it if it's supposedly unbreakable. Because if you can put screws into it, then it ain't unbreakable. Well, I think he goes on to speculate, and I think it's a good speculation, that there could be some kind of alchemical substance that allows adherence to it. My perception was that, though, overall, that the elder glass structures were moved into entire that they didn't really build into them. They just kind of, with the exception of the broken tower, where it says that they kind of slapped some wood around and that it wasn't pretty, that that they just kind of moved in. They were already, the structures were, were the way they were to begin with. Yeah, I got that impression as well. I mean, I, I, I'm going to pay more attention to it because on one hand, I can see as a point, how do you sort of, slap wood up onto the side of this building if you can't adhere it to it. Maybe it's glued. I don't know. But it's something to pay attention to. I think it's a... He's got a valid point, and I'll, I'll pay a little bit more attention to that. Well, they forward. do talk about this. The only way to get up to the top of the tower is um, on a rickety staircase that goes around the outside of the tower. So they've, they've built this... What I picture in my mind is kind of a scaffold built over top of it. Yeah, and and they talk about it swaying in the wind and things of that nature. And if you were able to adhere it to the side of the building, then it wouldn't be that rickety. So I think I think you're right. So so Ian says, any theories about lock? Like could lock open the thrice lock chest? Oh, I like it. You know, I I my perception is that. There's a lot of people who like who compare these two books and maybe it the authors might not like that very much because they wrote them about the same time but they obviously didn't influence each other. It's hard not to compare them when you read them back to back and that's how I I did. I read these two books back to back. They were on just on a list of things recommended to me and I read The King Killer Chronicles and then I read Lies of Locke Lamora and they both and now had you're these, making me do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I enjoyed it so much. I mean, that was like such a phenomenal couple months of reading for me. I'm sorry. I don't don't think we talked very much (laughs) during that time. When did you read these books? When did you start with King Killer? It was right after Wise Man's Fear came out. It's like 2011? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I definitely didn't see you guys very much. But, you know, you, you both of them have these, like, orphan kind of prodigies who are precocious and, and grow up to be morally gray heroes. Uh, you have the same sort of narrative structure where you're going back and forth between the flashbacks and the present day action and uh, a band, you know, band of brothers sort of camaraderie. It's just a lot of similarities. Yeah, there are. There are. So he also asked, could Jean work out a way to get into Lady Lackless's box? I think Jean could probably manage it <laughs> with his bandy legs. He could find a way to get into that chest. box. I think he could get into that box. <laughs> you think he could? 
what do you think he would report upon entering said box? <laughs> would he perhaps discuss what it smelled like? You'd say it was kind of naughty. Not didn't smell of lemons. It did smell of lemons. Cinnamon lemons. <laughs> Look, I want a damn cinnamon lemon. Is it too much to right? ask? Get on that science. Right. It seems awesome. <laughs> so it's interesting you say that because on Twitter this week, somebody posted and I retweeted. I'll read it here. So this was serious adult at serious underscore adult. Locke Lamora and Quoth are pretty much the exact same character. And I retweeted that, and then people proceeded to jump in on it and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Or other people being like, I like this one. Maybe I should try that one. You know, and, and uh, so there was quite a degree, quite a deal, a great deal of discussion about that particular topic. It's very interesting to compare the two. And I'm sorry if it pisses people off to do that, but it's hard not to. Um, because well, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to, we're totally going to do it. Because of the perspective and the storytelling, we know exactly what is going on in Quoth's head. Quoth's story is told from inside of his head. Yeah. And like you mentioned before with Locke, we get bare glimpses inside of his head, but mostly we just see what he does. So yeah. it's when you look at their actions, they do look very similar, but it's really hard to kind of get inside of Locke. And that's done on purpose. But it's, it, it's, it's an interesting contrast. It is, yeah. So a few people noticed that I put a little bit of an Easter egg at the end of the last podcast. Which I did not notice (laughs) until Until someone tweeted about it, and then I had to listen to it. So we had a tweet from uh, Cavius at Cavius22, that's C-A-V-I-U-S-2-2, in case I'm mispronouncing it, because I probably am. And he said, let me tell you a little story. And I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not going to read it precisely. Let me tell you a little story about a man, a tired man. A man who was listening to a podcast to help him get to sleep. Oh, no. (laughs) A man who was awoken by the sound of a demon child. (laughs) Howling like some banshee from the dark. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry I'm laughing so hard at your misfortune, sir, but that's hilarious. Uh, Go back and listen to the very end of the last episode. The very, very end. And then Adam also said, I listened to the, quote, bonus features at the end of the last episode. I'm still looking forward to being a parent, but that was some serious loudness. (laughs) It was kind of Halloween-y. I applaud you. (laughs) He said, I was walking down the street with my headphones on, and I just heard all this screaming and it was like a little bit too much of a peek into the life of the duke and duchess that is our life you've now seen our basement and our life and you know how insanely loud our children are (laughs) and why we can only record this podcast late at night yeah i mean that was sleepover level loudness i mean so it was like 20 percent louder than usual no they're always that loud they're loud So Ian at Ian Crone says, I liked Sabatha till you made the uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl reference. Well, we haven't seen too much of Sabatha. We haven't seen any of Sabatha, so we'll have to give it time. Give it time. He also says, the best people to con are the smart people. Patman at uh, Patman23 said, finally made it past chapter 60 60 of the wise man's fears. Time for me to start 
catching up to the Duke and Duchess. Adam said, any dream casting? Well, I've already given my cap of Barsavi. It's John Goodman in a red vest? Yes. Why Why you got to do that to me? <laughs> a red, red leather? Revenge. With... <laughs> we just want John Goodman in red leather. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. Adam and Ian were both like, if we don't find a way to cast John Goodman, are we even trying? <laughs> you know who... You know who I kind of picture Locke as, but it wouldn't work because he, he's too old now, mm. but is Sam Rockwell. I was going to say Sam Rockwell. Get the fuck here. I was totally going to say that. I was like, whoever he has is not as good as Sam Rockwell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can totally see that. I don't even know, but I'm, I'm going to say it now. Sabatha, Ellen Page. Hmm. A little premature considering I haven't even seen the character. Right. That's my gut. That's my gut instinct. It's a shame. Sam Rock. I got to find a, like a younger Sam Rockwell. Yeah. Somebody who's got that sort of vibe. But I don't feel like I've spent quite enough time with him yet to really get into the uh, to really get into the dream casting. So we'll have to we'll have to go come back to that. Yeah. Ian says uh, he wants John Goodman as the thief maker. Okay, I could see that. Current John Goodman. Yeah, I. I see the, yeah, I see the thief maker almost as like, mm. uh, for some reason I want to put Stephen Delane in there, the guy who plays Stannis. He's too hale. Well, in that role. Right. But hmm, we'll see, we'll see. And then uh, last one is Ian says, uh, suggestion for a future podcast covering the Rat Queens comic. I like that comic. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. It would be interesting to cover a comic. It would be interesting to cover a comic. Like, I I, I would like to, except we both kind of read it, I would like to maybe do, like, a Fables or something like that. Or Saga. Or Saga. That would be a good that one, yeah. so good. I'd like to do something that's a little bit more complete or maybe, like, maybe like one of the, like, spinoff Fables that's mm-hmm. relatively short, you know, 10 or 15 comics or something like that. Well, let us know what you think, listeners. It's an idea. It's definitely an idea. It's an idea. So that is all that I have. Do you have anything? That's it. Okay, fantastic. So you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com, also on Twitter at the D and D Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess and also on our Facebook podcast group by searching for the Duke and Duchess Podcast Group on Facebook. It's a nice place to hang out with us, a good place for discussion. And unlike our regular Facebook page, anybody can post topics. So just kind of a good place to come and hang out with us. We love your iTunes reviews, so please continue to give us those. But the thing we love more than anything is word of mouth. So tell a friend, tell a coworker, talk about it on social media. And we're having more people do that. It's very exciting. Super exciting. Lots of fun. Pimp us out, yo. Good night, everybody. Good night.